0: Well, many years ago, back in the 1800s, over in England, my friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon delivered a talk to some young pastors about the problem of spiritual discouragement. And What he said there in many ways uh, is applicable to any Christian. And I just wanted to share one particularly helpful quote as it identifies that the way trials, the way struggles, and especially the way evil can impact us. He said this, when troubles multiply and discouragements follow each other in long succession, like Job's messengers, then too, amid the perturbation of soul occasioned by evil tidings, despondency despoils the heart of all its peace. Let me translate that for you this morning. When, when troubles multiply, like Job's messengers, and it upsets our soul with evil tidings, despondency or discouragement robs our heart of peace. It's it's one thing to face one trial, isn't it? But you remember Job's messengers? You remember in the book of Job how when the Lord granted Satan permission to mess with Job. And one group of messengers come and they say, "Hey, Job, we got bad news. Raiders have come and they've stolen part of your flock. You've got financial disaster." And the words were out of the guy's mouth when all of a sudden there's another messenger. "Hey, Job, we got bad news. The barns have burned down and all the grain is gone." And that guy's not done. "Job, we got bad news. More raiders came and the rest of the flock is taken." And then they got another messenger. "Job, your children were gathered for a meal and the house has collapsed and they've all died." Spurgeon says, "Job's messengers just keep coming." Your heart can be robbed of its peace because of discouragement or despondency is the word he used, right? How about you this morning? Have you been there where it just seems like and then there's another one of Job's messengers at your door? It feels like you can't get a win. It feels like circumstances are plotting against you or maybe even worse, maybe evil in the form of of systematic oppression of believers or in the form of just a a person who has it out for you is actually plotting against you? Or are you just facing waves after waves of suffering? Job's messengers sometimes just keep on coming. And when that happens, we face discouragement, that discouragement can rob our hearts of peace. That, That moment, that discouragement is occasioned By the persistence of sin and evil in the world, okay? The persistence of sin and evil often leads to our discouragement, right, and frustration. It robs us of peace. And I know no matter who you are here this morning, you are experiencing in one way or another the persistence of sin and evil in the world. But Matthew chapter 13, especially verses 24 to 43, our passage for this morning, is gifted to us by Jesus himself to directly address this issue. Jesus doesn't dodge hard questions, right? We talk about, well, what about the persistence of sin and evil in the world? Jesus says, okay, let's talk about that. But he does so not in a stale theological lecture, but he gives us the creativity of parables to help us wrap our minds around what's going on with the persistence of sin and evil in the world and ultimately to equip us to persevere in our faith. So this morning, as we get into Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 down to 43, we want to come into this passage recognizing that we may be experiencing some discouragement over the persistence of sin and evil in our lives. What does Jesus have to say about it? Let's find out, right? So we're looking now, again, at the parable, the primary parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, starting in verse 24. He presented another parable to them. Here we go. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. If you just pause there, verse 24. So this is a little different than the previous parable, the parable of the soils. This is now a parable that's about the kingdom of heaven. This is the first in a bunch of parables that are about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. God's kingdom is like. God's work is like, right? So here he's talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like and how it should impact us. Okay, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Not brain surgery. That's what you should do. Get it at Tractor Supply, all right? There you go. And so, but while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. Now listen, this might seem like a harmless prank, but it wasn't. This was a dastardly attempt to sabotage someone's finances, right? And to really negatively impact their family. The particular weed that we're going to see in a moment that was used in this parable that Jesus is talking about, it's called Darnell. And it, it's a weed that attracts a particular fungus, which can be and often is poisonous. And so it ruins an entire crop, which makes it unusable. So you, you lose the whole crop. Like that's, that's the potential disaster. At least that's a potential what could happen. Now, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't give us any background. We don't know if this was an elaborate, like, you know, Hatfields versus McCoy situation that just got out of hand. Or if this is just some kind of personal grudge for a, a no reason, a misunderstanding, a, you know, a social media you know, message that went sideways, we don't know. But for one reason or another, the enemy comes and attempts to sabotage this good work, right? kingdom of heaven is like this, what? When the plants, verse 26, when the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? You know the workers go out there this would have wouldn't have been apparent until you know over time and all of a sudden finally they see the the plants start to grow and they start to look a little bit more closely and they're like hold on a second we got a problem. And they go to the master they say listen what'd you do? Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Of course the master had sowed good seed. Verse 28 the master says an enemy did this, right? An enemy did this he told them. So they ask, so do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants ask him, do we should we just go and And pull up or try to pull the weeds up? No, he said, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. That's the parable. Just to give you a visual so you can kind of understand the difficulty of the situation, here's a picture of wheat and the weed darnel that's being referenced in the passage. So you probably can't tell the difference. If you can, you probably were a major in some kind of agricultural science. So well done to you. Uh, I can't really tell the difference. Now, this is a close-up shot, though. Let's look at the, look at the entire field. Can you imagine trying to figure out the difference and go through there? We're going to pick out just the weeds. So the, the, you know the, the, the servants are like, what are we supposed to do? And the master says, calm down. Don't panic. Wait for the harvest. Then once we then pull the harvest up, then we can discern what's what and we can deal with it that's the parable. Not terribly complicated, pretty straightforward. Jesus is going to explain it in detail in a moment, but the first thing I want you to see and just understand about what this parable is communicating, it's talking about, again, the persistence of evil in the world. We're supposed to hear this parable and be really frustrated that an enemy would go into somebody's field and ruin their work, or at least attempt to ruin their work, right? This is sabotage of the highest order. This is the, the trouble in the parable. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. We have a good master who's doing good things in the world, and yet evil persists. We still stub our toe on the problem of sin and suffering and wickedness. The fact is, we are wheat walking with weeds. We are wheat walking with weeds. At present, evil coexists with God's advancing kingdom. This is uh, a particularly difficult truth to be at peace with because evil causes so much problem, Such, such a great problem, so many problems, right? We live in paradoxical times. Jesus has come. We've been singing about it. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He was victorious, right, over Satan. Absolutely. And so we say, yes, we rejoice and we sing. And yet at the same time, sin and evil persist. For the moment, when we come face to face with sin and evil, even in less extreme forms, right, even in the kind of the mundane ways that we experience it in our own families, in our workplaces, at school, right, in our culture, we might respond with less than ideal responses. For example, we might respond with anger. Of course, anytime you experience sin done to you, your own sin, right, or evil generally in the world, it's right to respond with righteous anger. There is a righteous anger where we can see that it's wrong and call it wrong, right, and agree with God that it's wrong. But very often, righteous anger quickly turns to unrighteous anger. And it's just, I'm mad about this because it messes my plans up. It's inconvenient to me. It's not what I want, right? And so selfish anger, self-centered anger, right, is an Insufficient response to sin and evil. It's not right. Or maybe we might respond to sin and evil persisting in our lives with doubt. Where, again, Job's messengers keep coming and we go, God, what are you doing? What is going on? I'm not seeing the, the strategy here. Lord, I'm missing it. Right? And we might doubt God. And it might be an angry doubt or it might be a doubt of just despair, discouragement. Lord, what are you doing? Another insufficient response to sin and evil persisting in our lives is impatience. We may not say, God, what are you doing? But we may just say, God, can we hurry this up a little bit? I mean, I know the end, you know, so can we just get to that part, the good part, right? Can we just, can we go? Can we speed this up? And it's a general impatience. Americans are really good at impatience. We are the culture that invented the drive through right? <laughs> We're the culture that invented the smartphone. Like, we are all about getting stuff done quickly. Uh, I say this because also as as we were on the drive home this weekend. We're, like, ordering food on our phone, you know, to pick it up immediately when we get to the the next stop so that we don't lose any minutes on the road trip, right? And in one particular place, they had some struggles in the restaurant, and uh, it was, like, derailing our whole plan, you know, right? Because this is America. And if I order it on my phone, it should be ready when I say it, and you, you know, like, that's it, let's go, right? Uh, impatience. We can be impatient with the Lord. Lord, what are you doing? Will you get it done quicker, please? Another insufficient response, of course, to the persistence of sin and evil in our lives is sin itself. Maybe we say we're going to take matters in our own hands and just make things worse, right? Or maybe we, in, in a response to sin and evil being done to us, we find comfort in idols, And we say, oh, it's so bad. It's so frustrating. Here come Job's messengers again. I'm just going to dive into this idol. And I'm going to drink my problems away. Or I'm going to entertain myself and just forget what's really going on. And and hide in in entertainment or many other sources, right, of comfort. Rather than go to the Lord. Another insufficient response to the persistence of sin and evil is despair. It's just to throw in the towel. Just give up. Say, forget it. Forget it. I just can't. And honestly, that may be the one that is the most tempting when Job's messengers just keep coming. I just can't, right? I just can't. Before Jesus explains this parable, he interjects two more parables, right? These are also about the kingdom and they relate to the topic. So we have to just kind of wait for him to give us the full explanation of the the main parable. But he just sprinkles in two more, two bonus parables here. Again, still helping us to learn to deal with the problem of, of sin and evil in the world. But notice what he says in verse 31. Matthew says, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. But when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the sky come and nest in its branches, okay? If you pause here, Jesus is not striving for absolute botanical accuracy here. So someone, I'm sure, will argue with you that mustard seed is not technically the smallest seed. And you calm down. That's not the point, okay? We have a proverb in English. Mighty oaks grow from tiny acorns. Right. You had heard that proverb? You may now use it. You're welcome. Okay, so here you go. It's a, it's a popular one in our house. Uh, mighty oaks grow from tiny acorns, right? So, you know, the, the idea is that it may, not, it may not look like much at the start, But what happens with the mustard seed? With the mustard seed, first century Israel, the mustard seed plants this tiny little plant, tiny little seed, but it grows, and slowly but surely it grows taller than the other plants that were planted at the same time. In fact, so much so that it comes to, in some cases, a large bush or tree. And then you have this this opportunity for birds to come and nest in this tree and to find shade in it. You can't stop the mustard seed from growing. It's going to get there. It's going to grow. It's going to become big. Again, the acorn grows into the oak tree. It's small at first, but make no mistake, it's still growing. It's advancing. Well, he tells that parable. Watch, though. Then he adds another one. In case we don't like agricultural metaphors, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Okay? The the idea here, this is a sourdough image. All right, so now we're getting into the kitchen, right? And so you may know that with sourdough, if you take a little piece of sourdough and you put it into a a new batch of bread, that that leavening agent will spread. But don't miss the numbers. The numbers are important here, okay? It's a little bit of, of sourdough. A little bit of leaven is used. But here he talks about 50 pounds of flour. First century Middle Eastern diet, 50 pounds of flour is like a year's worth, okay? That's a lot. And so the image here is that with a tiny bit of leaven, that tiny bit of sourdough can spread and can actually leaven a massive amount of dough over time. It may not look like much to start with, but you get it in there, you work it in, and then that leaven will spread and it will, it will per- permeate the massive amount of dough. What is Jesus teaching us these two parables? Well, he says this. His kingdom work, Jesus' kingdom work, is unexpected and unstoppable. It's unexpected and unstoppable. Jesus uses an image in the first of these two shorter parables from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, and it's also used in Ezekiel. Chapter 17 and chapter 31, but it's this image in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he, and he dreams of uh, of this you know this tree that grows and the birds come and it, and it gets so big it surpasses all the other trees. It's a picture of his kingdom. And that these birds come and, and, and land in the in the tree, and they provide they're provided for with shade in the tree and all of this. Well, the message in Daniel, and the message here from Jesus, is that his kingdom, although it doesn't look like much, it will it will unexpectedly surpass all other kingdoms. It will be bigger than all the other plants. It will surpass them all. It doesn't look like much, especially in its very earliest days here in the Gospels. It may not look like much today, but make no mistake, it will get there over time. And in fact, it's not just that it will get there. Just like that leaven with the dough, you can't stop it from spreading. It's going to spread, and it's going to permeate even 50 pounds of flour in the, in the parable, right? It's going to spread and keep going, and no one can stop it. Now, what's the relationship of these two shorter parables to the one we just heard? Well, Jesus is equipping us to persevere by faith in the face of sin and evil still being in the world. And what he's saying is this. Don't miss it. He's saying, listen, it may not look like it to you on a given day, but my work It's unexpected, but it's unstoppable. It may not seem like the biggest thing around. It may not seem like it's the most successful strategy, but make no mistake, just like that mustard seed will grow, and just like that that flower is leavened, make no mistake, my kingdom will advance. My kingdom will grow. And it's unexpected, but it's unstoppable. No one can stop it. Mighty oaks grow from tiny acorns. Imagine... Imagine if some of those early disciples of Jesus, those first disciples, could just time travel to today. What would they think about the, the state of the church? It's a fun little, you know, imagination experiment. Of course, we can't really know. But I think amongst, amongst all the troubles that they would surely see and, and all of that, I think they would be blown away by the number of believers in Jesus there are across the world. Because they would say, listen, I could tell you when you could fit all the followers of Jesus in one room. Now, that's that's an important historical observation that we need to make. The church certainly didn't seem majestic or powerful in those early days. And yet, 2,000 years later, it has advanced. It's jumped continents, right? The fact is that what we read about happening in the Gospels spills over into the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we have the disciples take the Gospel, and they take it from town to town, from county to county, from nation to nation, and indeed from continent to continent. And when Acts is done, the kingdom work isn't done. It continues to grow. It continues to advance. God's Word continues to spread. And so we continue to have believers in more people groups through Bible translation and church planting and personal conversation. The Gospel is spread. Sometimes God takes the gospel to people. Sometimes God, sometimes God brings people to the gospel. But in both of those circumstances, we see the gospel advancing and his kingdom growing. This, the fact that there's a church in New Jersey, forgive me, all right? The fact that there's a church in New Jersey today is evidence of, of the truthfulness of this parable, right? Yeah, you can't stop the advancement of God's kingdom. But also, or even so, we have to acknowledge that today, comparatively, when we look at, around at our culture, when we look at governments and, and, and we look at uh, large corporations, the church seems small, it seems insignificant, it seems doomed to irrelevance, right? But the fact is, it's not. Sin and evil will persist for the moment, but make no mistake, the mustard seed is growing. And so we can have great confidence in God's work. There are three, I think, primary images that Jesus picks up on here from the book of Daniel to help us. The first, of course, is that God's kingdom will displace all others. Sorry, Apple, and sorry, Google, right? If Google just opened a brand new headquarters in New York City that refurbished an old, uh, you know, uh, rail railway, you know, building, and, oh, it's this glorious building, and I'm just thinking, yeah, nope, not it, you know? Coca-Cola, sure bet, and your stock investments, you know, one of the most you know, like stable corporations in American history, indeed maybe even in the history of the world, and yet the church will displace Coca-Cola. Chick-fil-A, sorry. Costco, her pays me to say it. Costco, yeah. No, I mean, the, the biggest, the, the governments, right? With, with massive military might, seeking to impose their will on others. Nope, they, they won't outlast God's kingdom. God's kingdom will displace all others. Secondly, God's kingdom includes Gentiles. This is just briefly alluded to here with the birds. But the birds are a picture of Gentiles being included in God's kingdom work, which is teased out in Matthew. So we'll see that continue to be teased out and, and explained in the book of Matthew. But if you're here this morning and you're not Jewish, that's for you. That God's, God's kingdom work includes the advancement of birds, of the Gentiles. Three, God's kingdom is unstoppable, as we said. You cannot prevent it. From growing, It doesn't matter what means people try to use, financial penalties, uh, you know, social stigma, attacks on the gospel uh, through um, anti-evangelistic efforts, uh, persecution, imprisonments, martyrdoms. they cannot stop the spread of God's kingdom. The danger here for us is underestimating what God is doing. That's, that's where we're going to struggle. Sin and evil, are, here comes Job's messengers again, right? Sin and evil are going to persist. And we have to go, okay, hold on a second. Even though sin and evil persist, that doesn't mean God isn't still at work. It doesn't mean that his kingdom purposes aren't still advancing. Again, it's paradoxical to us, but Jesus says you got to grab onto these foundational concepts. If you want to understand the kingdom of heaven, you got to understand that it can't be stopped. And yes, it's unexpected, but it's growing. Underestimating what God is doing can impact us personally in a couple ways. If you underestimate God's kingdom work personally, you might wonder, God, you're not even working in me, which he most definitely is working in you. In fact, there are a a boatload of passages, especially in the New Testament, which are specifically designed to teach us that when we are going through trials, God is especially working in us. Right? So we are to understand that when we face sin and evil and it impacts us, we're going through hard times, God hasn't abandoned us. On the contrary, God is investing in our growth and he's working on us spiritually. Think about that image of of the artist, you know, sculpting the statue. When we're going through trials, chi- God is chipping away the raw edge of the stone and he's making us into that image of Christ. He's doing that work, so don't personally underestimate what God is doing in your life. Maybe you're here this morning, and you just feel like you're not going anywhere. You just have to understand that even though it might seem like that, you can be confident that God's kingdom kingdom work is advancing in your life. Don't despair. Now, that's about ourselves personally, but also personally, we might underestimate God's work in someone else. You might think, well, God's not going to be able to turn them around. Or they've got a long way to go. God's got. Us, God, are you kidding me? Right? Well, we recognize God's still at work in us. We also recognize that God's still at work in others. Which means even when others fail, when they're struggling, they're going through a hard time, guess what? We don't give up. We don't write them off. Yes, we faithfully confront sin, absolutely. But as we do so, we do so with confidence that God's kingdom work is advancing. So we continue, we persist with one another, even though we recognize, yes, we're imperfect and we're struggling, right? We want to be faithful to follow God's word and and root out the, the, the sin that's in our lives. But as we do so, we do so always with a recognition that none of us have it all figured out. And our spiritual growth is a function of God's grace. Remember, that's what we learned last week. It's God's grace that results in fruitfulness. It's not because we've figured it out. Now, when we underestimate what God is doing, it hits us personally, but it also can hit us corporately. Don't underestimate how God will use Green Pond Bible Chapel to change the world. I've got t-shirts, okay? I mean, let's go. And I I love our church. It's We're so blessed in so many ways. But one of the things I love most about our church is that we're in the middle of nowhere. You know? Like, we just, we don't, it's, we're not like, you know, it's like, we're not like a city church. like in some kind of a crucial strategic area. And yet, at the same time, and people have said this to me, they said, Pastor Ryan, it's so, it's so funny how God has used this church to do so much. And I said, well, it's not funny. We're like the mustard seed, right? I mean, that's the deal. God is pleased to use the common, everyday, mundane things, right, in the lives of, of the average local church to advance his kingdom cause. And yes, we're, we may not be the biggest church, so what? We may not have the fanciest fill-in-the-blank, so what? That's not important. What's important is that we're making and maturing disciples of Jesus, right? God's work is advancing. So we don't underestimate. Even when we see sin and evil, even in our own church, even as we, we have to deal with that, and, and we have to pursue and call people to repentance, and we have to work with each other's imperfections and failures. Yes, we do that, and it's hard sometimes, but we never, we never and say, wow, God's done with us. He's abandoned us. No way. So we need to be encouraged about our own church. But also, crucially, corporately, we need to be encouraged about what God is doing in other churches. Because, newsflash, we're not the only church. I also have that t-shirt available for you. So if you just need, there's two of those available. It's actually, it's a pack. It's a two-pack. You get them both, right? So we're not the only church. Which means we can be excited about what God is doing in other local churches in our own area. Right? we can also be excited about what God is doing through believers all across the world. You know. And sometimes we can really get our wires crossed on this because we get so focused on our church. And again, we praise God for our church. It's our primary area of ministry. But we can get so focused on our church, we can forget that God's kingdom work is advancing outside of these walls and outside of our community. And if we're blind to that work, what do we miss out on? We miss out on seeing these parables come to life, that mustard seed growing, right? We can see it. I had, a, uh, I had a call about a potential ministry opportunity just a few weeks ago in a very faraway place in a Middle Eastern country, difficult circumstance, okay? And so I, I had no knowledge of the church in this particular place. And this guy faithfully just shared the testimony of what God was doing there. And I was blown away. I'd never, I didn't know about it until talking to him. And when he explained it to me, I wasn't threatened by that, right? I was encouraged by that. It's like, wow, God is doing something in other places, just like he's doing here. In fact, it sounds eerily similar, what he's doing there to what he's doing here. The fact is, when we underestimate what God is doing, we miss out on seeing the progress. Both both personally, in ourselves and in others, and then corporately, in our own church family and in other churches. Now, this is a reminder, or Jesus then gives a reminder of the reality of what teaching in parables looks like. And he did this last week as well. So this just kind of piggybacks onto that explanation. But notice verse 34. Matthew gives us a reminder here of the, the, the reality of Jesus teaching in parables. Not everybody got it. Verse 34. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He is quoting there. Matthew's quoting from Psalm 78 verse 2. That's a psalm attributed to Asaph. And so really in that psalm, Asaph uh, poetically reviews Israel's history and proclaims God's faithfulness in the midst of Israel's history. So it's a, it's a longer psalm. It's a really cool psalm. But at the beginning, he says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Well, what are these secret things? God's work in the midst of all these different circumstances. And of course, that culminates in the work of the Messiah and the building of the Messiah's kingdom, which is God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which is what these parables are about. So, here, what Matthew teaches us in verses 34 and 35 is that Jesus is the revealer. He's the one who reveals the secrets of God's kingdom, He's the authoritative prophet. Again, we could go over to the Gospel of John and and realize that, of course, he is the word that became flesh for us. But, of course, as he is the prophet, he's the revealer of secret things. He tells us things that we could never know apart from it being revealed to us. Not everyone gets it. Not everyone receives the message. And so, again, Matthew just kind of pings us, as he did last week, and as he continues to do in this section of Matthew, and just keeps saying, well, what about you? Are you receiving the revelation? Are you, are you hearing Jesus? Are you actually responding and following and changing? Again, we have this kind of hint here that faith is a function of God's grace. Only God can reveal these truths to us, but only God can raise the dead. And frankly, only God can give us ears to hear. So you might just pause in verses 34 and 35 and just ask, so how am I doing responding to the word of God? How am I how am I doing, doing responding to Jesus as the revealer of the secrets of God's kingdom? Am I changing? Am I following him? Right? Or am I letting Job's messengers just kind of pummel me into discouragement? Well, what about the wheat and the weeds? Let's get back to that the primary parable here in Jesus' explanation in verse thirty six. Then he left the crowds and went into his house, into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Okay, you pause there. You got to love the disciples sometimes because they just are, they're okay saying we didn't get it. So they go into the house, right? And we don't know whose house it is, but nonetheless, they go into the house and he, Jesus has given the parable, the wheat and the weeds, they're going to gather them up and then separate them and then the burn and the farm, or burn then bring them, bring bring the barn or whatever, and and they're like, oh, okay, we're we're tracking with you, but they're not, right? And so then they get in the house, and they're like, they're doing other stuff. And I don't know who it was. And maybe it was like a casual ask. And they're like, oh, yeah, Jesus, um, you remember that thing you said about the wheat and the weeds? Yeah, what was that all about again, right? Or maybe they were goading each other, like, who's going to ask? Peter, Peter go, Peter, go ask him. Peter, go ask him, you know, and like waiting to find out, right? So, of course, what we found out last week, this is kind of the pattern. Jesus gives the, the parable to the big crowd, but then he reserves the explanation for a smaller group. This is why Psalm 78.2 applies. He's the revealer of secrets, right? But that revealing of secrets, it's gifted, right, to the church. He says, okay, I'm, I'll explain it, but I'm not just going to explain it to everybody. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to give you the gift of explanation, of the revelation of the secret. It's a function of his grace, right? So he explains. Now, he basically just gives a bullet point for each element of the parable. So if you like thorough explanations, here we go, right? Just a bullet point, you know, here we go, down the list. Verse 37, he replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So if you pause right there, Jesus is the son of man. The son of man is the one who sowed the good seed. He is doing that good work, all right? There we go, awesome. Verse 38, the field is the world, all right? and the good the world and the good seed these are the children of the kingdom the weeds are the children of the evil one let's pause verse 38 there's a couple here right the field in which the good the the owner sows the son of man sows is the world sometimes people misinterpret this parable and they say it's about the church and how you can't tell in the church believers from unbelievers that's not what he's saying in the parable he's talking about the world in general and he's talking about yes the church exists but then so does Sin and evil and unbelievers, right? They exist in the world, not necessarily in the church. Uh, that's another topic for another day, but sometimes people misunderstand the parable in that sense. Okay, so the field is the world, right? And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. So the, the seed that's going to grow into the wheat says, These are believers, the children of the kingdom, those who respond to God's word and faith, right? That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Absolutely. But then he says, the weeds, in verse 38, the weeds are the children of the evil one. These are unbelievers. But he doesn't say unbelievers. He says they're children of the evil one. They are, in most cases, unwittingly followers of Satan. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the, the persistence of sin and evil of the world in the world here, Jesus attributes to the activity of Satan. Which is totally consistent with what we read in Revelation chapter 12, where Satan is working to... He's pictured there in that vision. He's working to try to thwart the mission of the church and try to cause problems for believers. So yeah, the weeds are the children of the evil one. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. He is the saboteur. He's the mischievous one. Well, what about this harvest image? The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters. And the harvesters are angels. You'll notice here that the angels aren't the judges they are basically the bailiffs who do the work of the judges. They're the, they're the, the ones who gather for judgment. They're not the ones who actually uh, participate in the judging. They're not the, they're not the final arbiters. They're just the servants of the judge. Okay, verse 40. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. Jesus says this parable is really about the end. Because, yes, in the meantime, right, for the moment, you have wheat and weeds coexisting in the world. The church is growing, but sin and evil persist. But that's not going to be the way it is forever. Because this parable comes to a conclusion in the harvest. And what does the harvest picture? The harvest pictures the judgment. And it pictures God's angels going around and collecting everyone from the earth. And the angels do this work of sorting the wheat from the weeds. And they present them to the Lord for judgment. And what happens to those who are not believers? Those who have not trusted in Christ? Jesus himself says, right, what? The Son of Man will send out his angels They will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be eternal judgment. This actually turns on its head the image from Daniel 3. Do you remember back in Daniel? There's a lot of Daniel in this run of parables here. But you remember in Daniel chapter 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were refusing to worship the political idol that Nebuchadnezzar had put up? And so they're, they're, they're judged for that by Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, they're cast into that fiery furnace. Well, here the image is flipped, right? And here, instead of believers, faithful believers being persecuted and being thrown into a fiery furnace, here Jesus, in, in the judgment, will take unbelievers and he will cast them into the fiery furnace. And rather than them simply being annihilated, as some people say, the statement here that they will, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that refers to ongoing suffering which is unpleasant to talk about. But it's an important recognition that we have to say that sin and evil persist for the moment, but they won't persist forever. That God will, one day on the day of judgment, rightly deal with the children of the evil one. He's going to solve the problem of evil. If you want to see another presentation of that, read the book of Revelation. It gives you a visionary representation of God solving the problem of evil and and telling us where we're headed ultimately. But, of course, in the parable, Jesus says, let me tell you where where sons of the kingdom are going, children of the kingdom. Verse 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. There could not be two more opposite fates, could there? On the one hand, you have the children of the evil one who refuse to, to believe in Jesus, who refuse to turn to him in faith, And what do they find? They find judgment for their sin, which is rightly deserved. And God is the perfect judge, and he is trustworthy in that judgment. So there we go. Sin will be dealt with. Evil will be dealt with. Even if we can't find justice in the short term, as so often we can't, God will render the verdict. Right. So sinners will be judged. But then at the same time, we find that those who trusted in Christ receive what they've been promised, eternal life. But again, in an image from the book of Daniel, chapter twelve, Jesus here talks about the righteous shining like the sun in their father's kingdom. When we think I, I, again, I was thankful to experience the sun down a little further south in the last week. Right, it just reminds you the sun fundamentally is a good gift, isn't it? And even on cold days like today or cold mornings like this morning, we can think we can be thankful to see evidence of God's kindness in the sun. The image here of the righteous shining like the sun, it's just an image of goodness. Light, warmth, growth, it's a positive image, right? The righteous will shine like the sun because they've been raised to eternal life. That's what Daniel 12 talks about. That's where this image comes from that Jesus uses. So He says, yeah, the righteous, you don't have to worry about the ultimate outcome because even though it's hard for the moment, we are headed towards this glorious, eternal existence where we will experience peace. And you can even say it this way. Not only will we experience warmth, but we will be a source of warmth. Like we, will be, we will be good and fundamentally reflect the image of Jesus, our Savior, forever. Shining like the sun. That's where we're headed. Jesus, as he reveals the secrets of God's kingdom here, he adds one other element to his kingdom work. Yes, his kingdom work is unexpected and unstoppable but it's also unhurried, okay? His kingdom work is unhurried. The point of this parable is that we're going from A to B. And right now, we're somewhere in the middle. And so what happens is, Job's messengers are going to come knocking. And they're going to say to you, you've lost your job. They're going to say to you, the market's tanked. Or they're going to say to you, there's a crisis in your family. Or they're going to say to you, Someone has died unexpectedly. Or they're going to say to you, You've got a diagnosis that's not looking good. There's going to be bad news. In the midst of that, however, what we find is not a reason for discouragement and despair. We find in this parable, in this, this group of parables, we find encouragement. That, yes, Jesus' kingdom work, it's unexpected. It may not look like much, but it's going somewhere. And it's unstoppable. You can't stop it from spreading, just like that leaven in the dough. And fundamentally, though, it's unhurried. That Jesus' kingdom work will get to where it's going in God's perfect time. There is a day of judgment coming. And that day of, of judgment is a reminder to us that God is still at work even today. So, yes, there are two fates here in the parable the fates of the children of the evil one, that's a fate of judgment, and the fate of the children of the kingdom, which is the fate of eternal glory. And as disciples of Jesus, we have to then, basically, as we think about God's kingdom work and the nature of his kingdom, we have to embrace the long game. Are you familiar with this concept, embracing the long game? Some of you like strategy games, you know, or or like, you know, long, long form you know races and things like that. When you embrace the long game, you just recognize that that, like in a baseball analogy, you're not going to win the game in the first inning, right? You got to go all nine. You got to play all four quarters in football, right? You got to play all 90 minutes in soccer. Like you got you to get to the finish, right? So our strategy has to take into account the long game, that we recognize this is a long game. What does that look like for the believer? Perseverance in the face of evil, right? We forge ahead in faith. That's kind of the main thing that Jesus is, is encouraging us towards today. Um, I thought here, though, specifically that perseverance looks like outlasting Satan, or maybe outwitting, outplaying, and outlasting Satan. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, Survivor. It was—it's a, um, <laughs> a blight on our culture, but a blight on our culture. But the theme of the show Survivor is outwit, outlast, outplay, or outwit, outwit outplay, outlast. And I, I feel like that's kind of a helpful motto for thinking about embracing the long game as believers. That Satan is going to actively try to sabotage and mess up what God is doing. What do we have to do? We need to outlast him. His judgment's coming. It's sealed, right? But that, that judgment is coming. So we just have to outlast him, which also might mean outwitting him by clinging to God's word and outplaying him by being strategic in how we live our lives. What does it look like to embrace the long game? Well, we recognize that, yeah, we live in a broken world. And so... We should not be shocked when we experience sin and evil. Every once in a while, I come across this, right, with believers where, like, the culture does something crazy or a movie comes out and it's really scandalous and they mess up, you know, something about the gospel of Jesus or whatever or something really heinous is done or a law is passed, you know, justifying sinful behavior or whatever, and people come and they're shocked by that, right? And I'm thinking, how can you be shocked? We are wheat walking among the weeds. We should expect to find sin. When Job's messengers come knocking, whatever form that takes, we go, yeah, that's, this is part of it. It's the long game. We're playing the long game here. So I understand. Now, that doesn't mean we're not saddened by sin and, and evil in our culture. Of course we're saddened. But there's a difference between being shocked and being saddened. If we're shocked, it means we didn't expect it. If we don't expect to experience sin and evil, we're not listening to Jesus. Right? So we recognize, yes, I understand. I'm going to experience sin and evil in this world. In the meantime, in the short run, Right? But even as I experience that, I should respond with sadness. I'm not happy about it. It's hard. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. But fundamentally, we're playing the long game. So yes, we live expecting sin and evil in the world. But then we don't live as if we're worldly. We live as sojourners. We're not from around here. We're headed to an eternal destiny, which is far different from the world. And so there's a moral distinction between the sons, the children of the kingdom, and the children of the evil one. So while we rub shoulders and while we are wheat amongst the weeds, there is a difference between the wheat and the weeds. And so we live differently and we behave differently. And so just because we recognize sin and evil will persist for the short term, it doesn't justify us engaging in sinful behavior or behaving uh, in ways that are, that are sinful to one another, right? So we're not shocked by evil. But at the same time, we per- persevere as sojourners with moral distinction. Maybe finally here, just thinking about embracing the long game, We don't give up, and we don't give in, right? We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. We forge ahead one one day at a time, sometimes one conversation at a time. But we, we move forward. We don't give up, and we don't give in. There is also in this passage a warning to unbelievers. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're with us. This is a hard message to hear, but it is the very word of God, and it's the word of God that you need to hear today. And that is this. That outside of Christ, you are a child of the evil one. That does not mean you're an active member of the church of Satan. But what it does mean is that Satan, as he leads this world in rebellion against God, you are following his leadership, unwittingly, unknowingly. And so there's a warning here that says, listen, children of the evil one, there is a day of judgment coming. Now, we don't know when that day is. And so every day between this day and that day that God defers that judgment is an opportunity for you to respond to his word with faith. That offer stands today. It's why Matthew wrote his gospel. It's why he says at the end of verse 43, let anyone who has ears listen. Let anyone who has ears to hear, hear. Listen, if you have ears, then hear the word of God and respond in faith. And so if you're here and you are a child of the evil one, there's an opportunity for you to change families today how do you do that well you repent of your sin you confess it call it sin turn away from it and put your faith in jesus as you trust in jesus what do we find well we find a messiah who as he lived and taught right taught these very remarkable things he not only taught these remarkable things he went to the cross which related to our parables this morning just think about that for a minute jesus goes to the cross doesn't that mean he lost Jesus is executed. Doesn't that mean the mission failed? Doesn't that mean that the movement is over? But what happens, of course, is that not only does Jesus die for our sin, but he conquers death in resurrection. How in the world can you be confident that, that you will shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom? Right, how can you be confident if Jesus hasn't conquered death? If Jesus hadn't conquered death, we could hope, but we wouldn't know. But because he's conquered death, we know, we know that death is a temporary enemy. And so there's this great hope in the gospel. Even as Jesus died, he unexpectedly rose from the dead, which is all a part of the unstoppable advancement of his kingdom and the unhurried progress that we see in God's plan. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe today's the day that you become a child of the kingdom. Ultimately, our rallying cry is that we can do it. We're the best. We are not the best. Our rallying cry from these parables is God is doing it. He is doing it. So we forge ahead in faith. Job's messengers are going to come. I don't know what they're going to say to you, what message they'll bring, but they will come. But even so, we know where we are headed. We are headed to resurrection. We are headed to glory we are headed to peace and satisfaction, shining like the sun. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom work is unhurried, unexpected, and unstoppable. In that same talk that my friend Spurgeon gave on spiritual discouragement, he went on to say this. Yeah, it's hard, right? Job's messengers, right? Remember that? He said, Cast the burden of the present, along with the sin of the past and the fear of the future, Upon the Lord, who does not forsake his saints. If you're, if you're wondering, well, what are my marching orders I'm going out of here? Well, I think this is it. Jesus' kingdom work, right? It's, it's unexpected, it's unstoppable, it's unhurried. Well, so what? So cast those burdens of the present, the sins of the past, and the fears of the future. You cast them all on the Lord, who does not forsake his saints. His kingdom is advancing. Let's pray together. We'll ask him to help us persevere. Lord, we thank you for uh, this group of parables, and we just thank you for this unit where Jesus, you explained to us one aspect of the nature of your kingdom, specifically how we should persevere and how your kingdom advances in spite of the persistence of sin and evil. So Lord, we pray that we would believe that this morning. I pray that it would be an encouragement to us even as we face difficulties, trials, or as we experience evil in the world. Lord, help us not to be discouraged when We see a lack of justice in the world and help us to know that ultimately we are heading to that final day of judgment where all will be made right. Lord, I I pray for those even here today who are not followers of you. I pray they would be convicted of their sin. They would see the goodness of your grace and they would turn to you in faith today. Lord, I pray for believers here. Lord, I pray that you would help us, equip us to persevere in the faith, especially in the midst of the challenges that we face on a daily basis. Lord, we thank you that one day we will shine like the sun because of the gospel in resurrected glory, experiencing eternal peace and rest. Until that time, Lord, equip us with the strength we need to walk by faith. We ask for this help now in Jesus' name. Amen.